Greetings all you individuals. Welcome to the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I'm Steve Johnson. It's good to be with you today. All right, so we are continuing on with our Exodus study. Hopefully it will not take us as long to get to the end of the Exodus study as it did for the Israelites to get out of the wilderness by the end of the Torah. But it's not about speed, it's about accuracy and digging down deep into the text as far as we can and getting all that we can out of it. God didn't give us the scriptures to see how fast we could get through them. He gave them to us so that we could grow closer to Him, so that we could study and grow in our faith and better understand the roots of where we came from spiritually so that we can know how to live this out in real-world, everyday life in 2021 and beyond. So, that is what we are here to do. We are going to be continuing on with our Exodus study, as I said. But first, I started something on the last podcast from the Wall Builders website, back when they did their Christian Heritage Week. And we talked about Christopher Columbus and some of the myths about Christopher Columbus and um, correcting the historical record. Wall Builders is the best website for American history you could ever find. It uses all original documentation and brings to the forefront a lot of stuff that historical revisionists in, well, in today's world like to do. But when you go back to the original sources, when you read the words of the people who were actually there and their contemporaries, then you get the perspective of what it was really like then. So now, with that in mind, we are going to continue with the next section of the Christian Heritage Week study that they did. Before we do our Exodus study, before we continue that, we're going to go back and look at this. And we're going to look at this section titled, The Bible, The Rock of Our Republic. And I don't know how far we're going to go in this, but uh, whenever I feel like it's a good place to stop, we will. And then we'll just pick up where we left off the next time. So, the Bible, the, the Rock of Our Republic. I said that in the last time I read something where they, st- they stated that the Bible was basically America's true foundational document. And I agree with that. And that's why this next section, the Bible, the Rock of Our Republic, is titled what it is. So, here we go. Let's commence with this reading as soon as I can find where it is. In case you can't tell, I'm stalling because I lost my place in the page. There we go. I found it. See, I knew what I was doing the whole time. I was just checking to see if you guys were paying attention. That's all. All right, here we go. Interestingly, one group of American leaders that repeatedly affirmed the historic impact of Bible teachings in shaping America was U.S. presidents. For example... In the formative days of the Republic, this is President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
in the formative days of, of the Republic, the, direct, the directing influence the Bible exercised upon the fathers of the nation is conspicuously evident. We cannot read the history of our rise and development as a nation without reckoning with the place the Bible has occupied in shaping the advances of the Republic. I suggest that a nationwide reading of the Holy Scriptures for a renewed and strengthening contact with those eternal truths and majestic principles which have inspired such measure of true greatness as this nation has achieved. That was President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, or FDR. Now, President Teddy Roosevelt. The teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our whole civic and social life that it would be literally, and I do not mean figuratively, I mean literally impossible for us to figure to ourselves what that life would be if these teachings were removed. We would lose almost all the standards by which we now judge both public and private morals, all the standards toward which we, with more or less resolution, strive to raise ourselves. Almost every man who has by his life work added to the sum of human achievement of which the human race is proud, of which our people are proud, almost every such man has based his life work largely upon the teachings of the Bible. This is President Teddy Roosevelt. Of the many influences that have shaped the United States of America into a distinctive nation and people, this is President Ronald Reagan, none may be said to... Uh, let me start that over. Of the many influences that have, been, that have shaped the United States of America into a distinctive nation and people, none may be said to be more fundamental and enduring from, than the Bible. The Bible and its teachings helped form the basis of the Founding Fathers' abiding belief in the inalienable rights of the individual, rights which they found implicit in the Bible's teachings of the inherent worth and dignity of each individual. President Zachary Taylor, next. It was for the love of the truths of this great book, the Bible, that our fathers abandoned their native shores for the wilderness. Animated by its lofty principles, they toiled and suffered till the desert bloomed as the rose. Isaiah 35, 1. The Bible is the best of books, and I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and preeminence of our institutions. A free government cannot exist without religion and morals, and there cannot be morals without religion or religion without the Bible. Especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young. It is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. Next is President Ulysses S. Grant. Hold fast to the Bible as the sheet anchor of your liberties. Write its precepts in your hearts and practice them in your lives. To the influence of this book we are indebted for all the progress made in true civilization. And to this we must look as our guide in the future. President Abraham Lincoln said, The Bible is the best gift God has given to men. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. But for it, we could not know right from wrong. President Woodrow Wilson, showing that even broken clocks are right twice a day, said, America was born to exemplify that devotion to the elements of righteousness which are derived from the revelations of Holy Scripture. 
President Harry Truman. Not Harry Falsman, Harry Truman. He said, The fundamental basis of this nation's law was given to Moses on the mount. The fundamental basis of our Bill of Rights comes from the teachings we get, which we get from Exodus and Matthew, from Isaiah and Paul. I don't think we emphasize that enough these days. But, the Wall Builders article continues, Long before our presidents stressed the importance of the Bible, our founding fathers, the early leaders largely responsible for the birth and establishment of, an, of America as an independent nation, had already done so. For example, John Adams, signer of the Declaration of Independence and former president, said, The Bible is the best book in the world. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. What a utopia! What a paradise would this region be! Next is Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration of Independence. He said, The Bible contains more knowledge necessary to man in this present state than any other book in the world. By renouncing the Bible, philosophers swing from their moorings upon all moral subjects. It is the only correct map of the human heart that has ever been published. Next is Patrick Henry, the guy who said, Give me liberty or give me death. He said, The Bible is a book worth more than all the other books that were ever printed. Next is President John Quincy Adams, who said, no book in the world deserves to be so unceasingly studied and so profoundly meditated upon as the Bible. The first and almost the only book deserving such universal recommendation is the Bible. Next is Elias, Elias Boudinot, President of the Continental Congress and Framer of the Bill of Rights. He said, Were you to ask me to recommend the most valuable book in the world, I should fix on the Bible as the most instructive both to the wise and ignorant. Were you to ask me for one book affording the most rational and pleasing entertainment to the inquiring mind, I should repeat, it is the Bible. And should you renew the inquiry for the best philosophy or the most interesting history, I should still urge you to look into your Bible. I would make it, in short, the Alpha and Omega of knowledge. John Jay, who was President of the Continental Congress, author of the Federalist Papers, and original Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, said, The Bible is the best of all books, for it is the Word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts. Robert Freight Payne was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote, I believe the Bible is, is to, excuse me, let me try that again. I believe the Bible to be the written word of God and to contain in it the whole rule of faith and manners. James McHenry, signer of the Constitution, said, The Holy Scriptures can alone secure to society order and peace and to our courts of justice and constitutions of government, purity, stability, and usefulness. Bibles are our strong entrenchments, lines of defense. Where they abound, men cannot pursue wicked courses and at the same time enjoy quiet conscience. 
Noah Webster was an early educator and schoolmaster to America. He said, All of the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from them despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. There are similar declarations from countless other noted national leaders of that time. Now what about some of the other foundational evidence we have for the Bible being America's foundational document? Well, let's look at the Virginia colony. Many of the early explorers who had been influential in the growth and development of America were inspired by a love of God and His Word. One such example... Hold on one second. Let me... Hold on one moment. Okay, sorry about that. I had to take care of something real quick. Let me start that again. Uh, the Virginia Colony. Many of the explorers who had been influential in the growth and development of America were inspired by a love of God and His Word. One such example was Richard, was Richard Hacklett. He lived from 1558 to 1603, and he was a gospel minister and the greatest English geographer of America's early colonization period. For decades, he advocated for America to become a safe haven for those being persecuted for their desire to live by God's word. As he explained in his 1584 Discourse on Western Planting, he said, We shall, by planting there in America, enlarge the glory of the gospel, and from England plant sincere religion and provide a safe and a sure place to receive people from all parts of the world that are forced to flee for the truth of God's word. The, the Reverend... Excuse me. The Reverend Hacklett was a member of the governing body of Virginia, America's first successful colony. And not surprisingly, the original charter of Virginia from 1606 openly declared its Christian beliefs, affirming that the colony was being started to propagate, quote, the Christian religion to such people as yet live in darkness and unhappy ignorance of the true knowledge and worship of God. And then we move on to Jamestown, 1607. The first Virginia settlers landed in America in April 1607. They erected a wooden cross at Cape Henry, where they came ashore. At the foot of, the cro at the foot of this cross, the Reverend Hunt led the 149 men of the Virginia Company in prayer, thanking God for their safe journey and recommitting the group to God's plan and purpose for the new world. Next we have John Smith and Pocahontas. And should I do I have time to get into that now or should I wait? Let me see how we're doing on time here. Okay, what about 15 minutes? I will pause here on this for now and that'll be a little cliffhanger. The next podcast I do, we will pick up with John Smith and Pocahontas. That will be easy to remember. I'll give you a hint if you haven't heard anything like this before. Um, if all you know of Pocahontas and John Smith is from the Disney movies, you probably uh, you're going to be a little bit surprised by what you hear in this. So we will stop there on the Christian heritage of America stuff for now, and we will pick up with our Exodus study. Let me get my notes out here. So give me one moment. There we go. 
and turn on the light so I can see what in the world I am doing because even though it is only 4 11 p.m. where I am and it's still daylight outside it's really dark over here in my little corner where my computer is so let's see what what was the last thing that we did here on the exodus study I remember we were right at the point of getting ready to hang on okie dokie smokies um Exodus 16, and since it's been a little while since I've done this, I will pull up Exodus 16 here, and for this, um, I will be using the New American Standard Bible for Exodus chapter 16. Let me pull up all my, I've got all this set up. Okay, we are ready to go. So let's look at Exodus 16 and see what it has for us. Then they set out for Elim, and the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. Now there's a fun name for something. The wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. And wouldn't you know it, the Israelites started grumbling again. Just like they well, went over last time, how they made such a habit of doing that. And they're about to do it again. So, here in the wilderness of sin, it says, On the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt, uh, that's where they, they parked at, but the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Don't say. The sons of Israel said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread until we were full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this entire assembly with hunger. Yes, Moses overcame sort of his whole speech impediment deal he that whether or not he actually had one or it was all in his head he overcame all this fear that he had all this trepidation so he could bring you all out into the wilderness to watch you die yes that was his whole point we saw all those plagues that god sent on egypt to let you all escape and gain your freedom just so he could watch you perish in the desert. That sounds so intelligent, except that it's not. Modern English version, uh, the MEV, it says, Now the children of Israel said to them, Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. I wish God would have killed us, they said, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. So now they are, they are remembering with longing their days of slavery in the past when at least all their needs were taken care of. Yes, we were being beaten and mistreated and worked to death and being used in ways that we should not have been, but at least we had full bellies of good food. At least we had all of our needs taken care of. We ate bread to the full, for you brought us out forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Look at his mercy here. He said, Indeed, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a certain amount every day. 
that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. Are you being tested by the Lord today? Will you pass the test? Verse 5, Exodus 16, And it shall come to pass that on the sixth day they shall prepare that which they bring in, and it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Why is that? Because the seventh day was the Sabbath, and there was no work to be done on the Sabbath. So he gave them twice as much on the sixth day, so that they would be resting on the seventh and would not be preparing it ahead of time, uh, would not be going out and working on that seventh day. Verse 6, So Moses and Aaron said to all the children of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord has brought you out from the land of Egypt. Why they haven't figured that out already is beyond me, especially with all that they saw, but never mind. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he hears your murmurings against the Lord. And, and what are we that you murmur against us? So Moses like, hey guys, uh, you're murmuring against us and, and the Lord. Well, what's up with that? Who are we? You're, you're including us in this. God's the one that got you out here. He's the one that saved you. Go. Yeah. So then, but anyway, then Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the evening and bread in the morning to satisfy. For the Lord hears your murmurings, which you murmur against him. I'm now, by the way, I'm still in the modern English version, the MEV. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. It's kind of like that verse that says, Against you and you only have I sinned. I think that was King David. He said that up to the Lord. He's like, God, it's only against you that I've sinned. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. So as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the children of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and indeed the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, In the evening you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So the Israelites are complaining because they're struggling to have their needs met. And God is merciful to them despite their murmuring. He says, Okay, I I see. I see where you guys are coming from. This is still kind of a new experience for you. It's been really tough out here. You went a few days without water at one point. Um, when you tasted the water finally, when you found some, it was bitter. It, I, I understand, okay? I'm going to give you guys some meat and bread. And eat till your heart's content. So in the evening the quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning a layer of dew was surrounding the camp. When the layer of dew evaporated on the surface of the wilderness, there lay a small flaky thing as fine as the frost on the ground. When the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. That's a pretty good question to ask when you don't know what something is. <laughs> what is it? Now, the ChristianAnswers.net Web Bible Encyclopedia says this of manna. It says, the, he, the Hebrew means, what is that? That's, that, that, that's why they said, what it, when they said, what is it? They named it manna. That's literally what they named it. What is that? So it would be like going out, of, going out in the camp and going, Hey guys, you want to eat some what is that? 
you know, there's a candy bar called whatchamacallit, and that, I guess that's the closest thing we have to to what they called this. However, obviously they weren't eating candy bars. But the uh, this Web Bible Encyclopedia from ChristianAnswers.net says, This is the name given by the Israelites to the food miraculously supplied to them during their wanderings in the wilderness. They ate this for 40 years. According to the Hebrew Bible in Jesus Christ, manna was miraculously provided from heaven. The name is commonly taken as derived from man. So this, the word for manna is derived from man. And it's an, this word manna is an, uh, this uh, word, excuse me, is an expression of surprise. I mean, what is it? That's an expression of surprise. But more probably, it is derived from manan, meaning to allot, and hence devoting an allotment or a gift. This gift from God is described as a small round thing like the frost on the ground and like coriander seed of the color um, let's see uh, or excuse me it's, it's like uh, basically tastes like wafers made with honey um, it was capable of being baked and boiled ground in mills or beaten in a mortar if any was kept over till the following morning, it became corrupt with worms. Now, now they're spoiling the rest of the chapter for us here. Let me see if there's anything else about this that I want to stress. Uh, this manna was evidently altogether a miraculous gift, wholly different from any natural product with which we are acquainted and which bears its name. The manna of European commerce today comes chiefly from, Calib from Calabria and Sicily. It drops from the twig twigs of a species of ash during the months of June and July. At night it is fluid and resembles dew, but in the morning it begins to harden. The, the manna of the Sinai Peninsula is an exudation of the manna tamarisk tree the L, excuse me. Uh, the tree is found at the present day in certain well-watered valleys in the peninsula of Sinai. The manna with which the people of Israel were fed for forty years differs in many particulars from all these natural products. So basically, they just took all that to say that this manna was a supernatural gift from heaven, and it is unlike any natural product that we might today identify as manna. This was truly a supernatural product and was a honey-tasting-like bread wafer. Jesus Christ referred to himself as the true bread from heaven, or the true manna from heaven. He did this in John uh, 6.31-35 and John 6.48-51. Revelation 2.17 also calls him the hidden manna. So there's what we have for that. Uh, let me see, where was I now? Okay, and Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Every man is to gather of it according to what he will eat. And Omer, and that's about three pounds, or 1.4 kilograms. That's an Omer. Three pounds or 1.4 kilograms. 
Every man is to gather of it according to what he will eat. Three pounds for every man according to the number of your people. Every man should take for them whoever live, for whoever lives in his tent. The children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So whoever had more people in their tent, they gathered more. Whoever had less people in their tent gathered less. It's basic common sense. When they measured it with an omer, he that gathered much had nothing left over, and he that gathered little had no lack. They gathered every man according to what he could eat. So nobody took more than they needed, and nobody suffered because they didn't have enough. Everybody took exactly what they needed. They became experts at measuring this stuff out. Moses said to them, Let no man leave any of it until, mor until the morning. However, they did not listen to Moses, there's a big surprise, and some of them left part of it until the morning and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to what he could eat, and when the sun got hot, it melted. Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers per man, or six pounds, and then all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the Sabbath, a holy Sabbath to the Lord, just as all Sabbaths were. Bake that which you will bake today, and boil that you will boil. And all that which remains over, lay up for yourselves to be kept until the morning. So they laid it up until the morning, just as Moses commanded. And it did not stink, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today. For today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found nothing. So even then, they're still disobeying. Well, let's go out here and see what we can find. Maybe, maybe Moses is wrong. Maybe the Lord isn't being up front with us. But I bet if we go out there, we might find some. Nope. They found nothing. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now the Lord, he's been pretty merciful with them up to this point. Okay, okay, you guys want some better water? We'll make that happen. Okay, okay, you guys want some bread and, and man, uh, want some uh, quail and manna? Got you covered. But now they're, they're, dis, they're continuing to disobey Moses. They're continuing to disbelieve the Lord. And if you want to make God angry, I've said this before. I think I said this recently on a podcast. But the only recorded time in the Gospels when Jesus got angry wasn't even, it doesn't even say that he was angry when he went into the, to the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers. When was he angry? He was angry at the unbelief of people. I think it was with the man with the withered hand when he saw their unbelief and he was angry with them at that. That, if you, you, you want to get on God's bad side, don't trust him. So, the Lord said, I'm going to make sure I find this. He said, the Lord said to Moses, verse 28, he said, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. 
So the people rested on the seventh day. I really want to read that in the message paraphrase because I have a feeling I'm going to like how that's worded. Verse 27 and following to 30. In the message paraphrase, it says, On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather anyway, but they didn't find anything. God said to Moses, How long are you going to disobey my commands and not follow my instructions? Don't you see that God has given you the Sabbath? So on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. So each of you stay home. Don't leave home on the seventh day. So, okay, it's not as good as I was expecting. I thought he was going to say something like, You fools, what are you doing? I told you I was going to take care of you, but... Not so much this time. So the people quit working on the seventh day. I'm mean, still in the message. It says here, The Israelites named it manna, which again means what is it? It looked like coriander seed and was whitish, and it tasted like a cracker with honey. Moses said, This is God's command. Keep a two-quart jar of it, and omer, which is three pounds, for future generations so they can see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness after I brought you out of Egypt. So God wants part of this, an omer full, which is about three pounds or 1.4 kilograms. He wants it kept so that future generations, when, they, when, when their ancestors, when their parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, whatever, say, yeah, uh, hey kids, you want me to tell you about the time? When uh, we were out in the wilderness and God rained down manna from heaven and fed us, and it just fell down from the sky every day. And on the sixth day, it fell down twice as much. And some of the kids look at their great-grandparent or their parent or their grandpa and go, Yeah, sure, that sounds like, you know, uh, sure. And I bet you walked to school both ways, barefoot in the snow, right? Uphill both ways, right? Ha <laughs> ha. They, they, they were to keep a portion of this manna so that they could see, so that it could be a testimony of what God did in the wilderness. No, no, this, this really happened. Look. Moses told Aaron, Take a jar and fill it with two quarts of manna. Place it before God, keeping it safe for future generations. Aaron did what God commanded Moses. He set it aside before the testimony to preserve it. The Israelites ate the manna for 40 years until they arrived at the land where they would settle down. They ate manna until they reached the border into Canaan. According to ancient measurements, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. And I know that is especially helpful to all of you reading this in today's language. Because according to what the heck is an ephah? What's ancient measurements? What? So let me read this in the New Living Translation. This is the New Living Translation. This is Exodus 16.36. The last uh, thing here. It says, The container used to measure the manna was an omer, which was one-tenth of an ephah. It held about two quarts. So there you go. Alrighty. So that is Exodus chapter 16. So let's go back and let's, uh, there's a key word here in this chapter that we also found from Exodus 15.25. Let me go back to the modern English version here, the MEV. And we're going to do a search for the word test. 
because it's a keyword in this chapter. Even though it's only found twice, it's a keyword. The first time is in verse 4, Exodus 16:4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Indeed, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain amount every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So he's going to test their their faith here. He's going, okay, we're going to I'm going to do this and I'm going to watch them to see how they respond. Are they going to trust me and obey me or are they going to just go their own way? You, know, you can go your own way like that. Verse 34. As the Lord commanded Moses Okay, the other one here is referring to the the testimony. The so that's not even so that's not even part of it. It's actually only there once. Then the the whole word test by itself. That's the only time it's actually there. So that is my mistake. My bad. So now we're gonna look up another keyword. And all of its related words, which would be grumble, grumblings, grumbled, etc. That's another key word in this chapter. Hang on one moment. In the new, in the new American Standard, it's called grumblings. But in the modern English version, it is called murmur, murmurings, or murmur, or murmured. So that's what we're going to look at. This one is actually found eight times, it looks like, in Exodus 16. Verse 2 says, The whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. In verse 6, it says, or excuse me, verse 7, And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he hears your murmurings against the Lord. And what are we, Moses and Aaron, that you murmur against us? Then, in verse 8, Then Moses said, This will happen when the Lord gives you meat to eat in the morning and bread in the morning to satisfy. For the Lord hears your murmurings, which you murmur against him. And what are we? Your murmurings are not against us, but against the Lord. So God's being merciful to them, even though they are murmuring against him. Verse 9, Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to all the congregation of the children of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your murmurings. And then verse 12, the last time in this chapter that murmuring is here. It says, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying in the evening, You shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. So, then the next key word we're going to look at here is Sabbath day and or Sabbath. Although the seventh day is set apart by God in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, this is the first time the word Sabbath is used in the Bible. So, going back to Genesis 2, 1 through 3, let's go ahead and go back, do a little flashback, get in our little time machine, and go back to the beginning. And Genesis 2, 1 through 3 says... So the heavens and the earth and all the hosts were finished. This is the creation week, the day when, or the week when the universe was created. It says, On the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, which means to set it apart for special use on behalf of God. Because on it he had rested from all his work, which he had created and made. So that is the origin of the seventh day holiness, or the Sabbath. Now let's go back to Exodus 16. And let's look up all the references we can to the Sabbath, or the seventh day. So on the Sabbath front, we have, it begins in verse 23 of Exodus 16. It says, He said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the Sabbath, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So there's two of the five references right there. Then verse 25, Moses said, Eat it today, for, it, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. So that's the next day. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Then... Going down to verse 27, verse 29, pardon me. It says, See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore he gives you bread for two days. On the sixth day, every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So why was God so angry with them when they went out on the seventh day to look? Remember what I said before. If you really want to get on God's bad side, he is the most patient being, I mean, he created patience, okay? He's more patient than any, even the best human can be. God is so patient. But if you really want to get on God's bad side, stop trusting him, disbelieve him. That bothers him more than anything else. And that's why he got so upset about the people who did not obey the Sabbath command. It's not that, you know, God just has a... He just picked a day on his calendar and said, I love this one more than all the others. No, he set it apart. Genesis 2, remember? He set it apart. He said, I've given you the Sabbath. I'm going to give you double the amount of manna so that you can eat both days and you won't have to go out and work on the Sabbath. And some of the people went out anyway and found nothing. They disbelieved God. They didn't trust His promises. And so He was upset with them. They failed the test. So there's all the references to the Sabbath. There are four references to the seventh day, which is a synonym for the Sabbath. Verse 25, Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day the Sabbath there will be none. Verse 27, It happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found nothing. Verse 29, Every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. Lastly, verse 30, so the people rested on the seventh day. They finally got the point and they stopped going out. They're playing on thin ice with the Lord here.
The next keyword we're going to look at is manna. And we're also going to look at bread because bread is a synonym for manna. So there are four appearances of the word manna in Exodus 16, verse 31. The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed and was white, for its taste was like the wafers made with honey. Verse 33, Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer full of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. Verse 35, The children of Israel ate manna for forty years. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And that's it for that keyword. Now, is there anything else here? It doesn't look like there is for that. Hang on one moment. Give me one moment to look at my notes here. And we're at about 45 minutes. So let's see if I can, with the rest of my notes here, if I can get the rest of this done in about 15 minutes to make this an even hour. Hang on for one second. Okay, looking at my notes for uh, from the precept upon precept uh, Bible study for Exodus, it looks like the stuff that we're going to be talking about next is kind of worthy of its own time as we're going to be looking at manna what we learned by a particular phrase from the last nine chapters and um, also looking at some of the other things that we've gone over to review this section of scripture so it seems to me like this might be a good place to pause for now um, so that's what we will do, and we will pick up tomorrow with more of the American History Christian Heritage Week from Wall Builders and Exodus, more from Exodus 16, as well as a review of what we've seen from Exodus 7, or excuse me, um, looks like Exodus 7 through 16. So that's where we will go for now. Uh, or tomorrow, I should say. And uh, I forgot to do this at the beginning, but if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, objections, um, expletives, no, keep those to yourself. Uh, but if you got anything at all, anything constructive that you want to say, if you want to just be a troll, uh, don't bother me. But if you actually want to you know, have any questions, thoughts, objections, whatever, um, topic ideas, whatever you want, you can email me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Again, that is wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. I am Steve Johnson. This has been the Wisdom on Wheels podcast, and I look forward to being with you again very, very, very soon. So, God bless, and have a good day, good Saturday. And uh, look forward to seeing you all manana or tomorrow. That's the goal anyway. Bye for now.